Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Strange Matters podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is bizarre, mysterious, and unexplained. I am Sean, and I will be the host for this episode. In this episode, I will be discussing the uniquely disturbing case of a Polish woman named Katarzyna Zawada. Katarzyna was a young college student who would suddenly go missing without a trace or clue in 1998. Her disappearance puzzled both her family and law enforcement, until a gruesome discovery was made that transformed this story from a simple disappearance into one of the strangest and most disturbing crime cases of the country. For decades, the fate of Katarzyna Zawada remained perhaps the biggest criminal mystery in Poland's history. In this episode, the tale of Katarzyna's mystery will be discussed, as well as the dark aftermath and the current fears of the ongoing investigation. A quick warning before we get into this episode is that it contains disturbing content, so listener discretion is advised. The story begins in Poland in the year 1998. Katarzyna was at this time a student at Jezielian University and was studying religion. She was described as a helpful and friendly young woman with a warm personality. Despite this, though, Katarzyna spent most of her time alone and did not have many close friends. Though she seemed friendly enough to those around her, during her time at college she appeared to enter a stage of loneliness and alienation. When not focusing on her studies, Katarzyna enjoyed hiking in the mountains and listening to music. She was a very avid Grateful Dead fan, and had started to collect their records. Katarzyna would often visit a local student music club, where she was in search of more recordings of the band. A week before her eventual disappearance, Katarzyna would place an order for a tape of the Grateful Dead that she didn't have yet, though when it arrived at the music club, she strangely did not answer or attempt to go pick it up. During the fall semester at university, she seemingly started to go through some type of change. She had altered her appearance a bit, including losing a notable amount of weight and dyeing her hair blonde. In November, she stopped showing up to lectures and neglected her studies entirely. What exactly had caused these drastic changes in a short period of time was unknown. As an adult, Katarzyna had made a point to regularly see a psychologist, whom she started to visit several years previously after she fell into a deep depression following the death of her father. Katarzyna had made an appointment with her doctor on November 12th of 1998 and asked her mother, Bogoslava, to come along. When that day came... Katarzyna never showed up for her session. This was extremely unlike her, and immediately made her mother Bogoslava worried. Her mother said about this, She did not come. I waited for her at the clinic, very worried. She always came to appointments, or would be verbal otherwise. Concerned, her mother attempted to search for her around in her usual spots, and asked around, but no one had seen her lately. When Katarzyna remained absent for the rest of the day, Her mother reported her missing to the police that evening. The police collected as much information as they could and started their own attempt at finding Katarzyna. The search for the missing girl had begun, but it would not be successful. For over a year after Katarzyna's sudden disappearance, the search remained entirely ineffective. It was as if the young woman had just vanished off the face of the earth. That was until a gruesome discovery was made that would change everything about this case. The Pusher Elk was a small, heavily used cargo ship, transporting supplies and materials up the Vistula, the longest and largest river in Poland. 
In the cold early morning hours of January 7, 1999, the operators of the Pusher Elk noticed that the ship's engines suddenly were behaving and sounding unusual. It quickly became clear that something was impeding the propellers from functioning properly. The captain of the barge ordered one of his men to check on the engines and see what the cause was. The operator opened a metal trap door to check on the engine turbine and was immediately hit with a nauseating smell from below deck. The captain and his operator looked below and saw that something was clearly entangled in the propeller. As they reached down for it, it appeared that the tangled object resembled something that looked like a thick piece of cloth and was described as very pale and emanating a horrible stench. After a few moments of investigating and pulling on this mysterious cloth, they realized with horror that on the surface of the tangled object was a human ear. After a few moments, the realization sunk in. They were not pulling on cloth, they were pulling on a body's worth of human skin. The traumatized boat crew immediately contacted the police, and this bizarre and disturbing scene was investigated. The first thought was that a floating body had gotten struck by the propellers, with the leading theory being that someone perhaps had fallen off another ship and had frozen or drowned in the river. But it very quickly became clear that there was no actual body at the scene, only this length of intact human skin. Two questions immediately surfaced off this disturbing and bizarre discovery. Whose skin did this belong to, and where was the rest of the body? Examiners first believed that the skin separated from the body once it became entangled in the propeller, thinking perhaps that the skin had softened and degraded some due to being in the water for some time. But upon further examination, they realized that the skin separation was nothing natural that could have occurred from time in the river or from the blunt force of the propellers. Instead, it was quite clear that this act had been intentionally and methodically done. A detailed examination of the skin showed that it was deliberately and carefully removed, as if the person responsible was preparing to form some type of outfit or a skin suit that could be worn. In fact, once the skin had been laid out and put together, it turned out that it looked like it had been made into a typical woman's full bathing suit. Beyond this disturbing fact, there was only a limited amount of information that could be determined. Investigators did calculate that the skin had been floating in the river for a few weeks at this point, though how long ago the skin had been removed from the body was unknown. Law enforcement began a further search of the water to see what else they could find. A week later, on a filter grate along the river, diving investigators would find a portion of a leg, parts of a pelvic rim, and a few scraps of clothing, including pieces of jeans and a flannel shirt with some material cut out. But as for the head and the rest of the body, these would never be found. Examiners found, after a thorough investigation, that the woman the skin belonged to had been mutilated, decapitated, and dismembered before her unknown killer cruelly fashioned a suit out of her flayed skin. The pathologist also determined that the woman had also been tortured before her death. After these initial findings of this horrific crime, the Polish law enforcement had little to go on. Who the victim was, who the murderer was, where the crime took place, and how long ago all remained unanswered. The cruel murder of this unknown victim became a cold case, and would be entered into the Department of Unsolved Crimes, named the X-Archives or X-Files. For many years, the fates of both Katarzyna and the identity of this river victim remained both unsolved and separate cases. 
In 2011, 13 years after Katagina went missing, policemen began delving back into the cases of the ex-archives. While browsing through the database of missing persons, they came back across Katagina, the 23-year-old student of religious studies who had suddenly vanished. Though her case had been closed back in the 90s because of lack of evidence, it was now reopened in 2011 by the Specialist Police Department of the Ex-Archives. Believing that there was a link between the missing college students and the unusual skin found in the Vistula, the department head Carol Suter began a new look at the case using more advanced forensic technology. The remains of the young woman found in the river were exhumed, and DNA and forensic testing was performed. The new forensic test revealed traces of plants not found in the river where the body was discovered. This has led police to believe that they could narrow down the area where the body had been prior to being dumped in the river. More important than that, however, was the hope of finally identifying who this unknown victim was. Though years had passed, Carol Suter ordered forensic experts to visit Katarzyna's family house. Carol later said of this, I sent people to her house. I said, do not make false hope and try not to scare the family, but you have to find some of her cells. Search old toothbrushes, combs for hair, anything. They collected biological traces from there and took them to the Department of Forensic Medicine. After this new search and taking old objects that had once belonged to Katagina, the lab began their test. Sure enough, some DNA was extracted and compared to the exhumed remains of the unknown victim, and it turned out to be a positive match. The body parts and skin that had been discovered in the river did in fact belong to Katagina Zawada. Though the ex-archives had successfully proven the link between the missing woman of 1998 and the skin found in the river a year later, there were still many unanswered questions. Now that the identity of the victim was known, the investigation switched gears and began to think of who could have done such a thing. One thing that was clear from the examination was that the skin had been professionally removed. In an interview, Carol Suter, head of the ex-archives, said of the theory of the murderer, they had no doubt that someone knew his stuff. He needed to know how to skillfully remove the skin. A butcher, perhaps, or maybe a surgeon. As law enforcement slowly tried to put the puzzle pieces together in this unique case, the investigation expanded. Beyond the Krakow police, experts from Southern Europe and even officers of the American FBI were contacted, and also included, in the investigation. Thomas Mueller, who was a psychologist and criminal analyst from Vienna, he was also a student of the famed FBI agent Robert Resler, the man who spent most of his career studying murderers and coined the term serial killer. Mueller agreed to assist with the case, and after seeing pictures from the autopsy, he confirmed the initial assumptions of police investigators. The murderer had killed on sexual grounds. Mueller admitted that this was the first time he had seen anything like this. He said, There were cases of skinning in Germany. We even researched that case but it was something else. The perpetrator played with the skin and did not know what to do next. In this case of Katarzyna, such a display of human skin was the only one known in the world. We were afraid that this could happen again. According to our theory that he sexually enjoyed it, he could try again. In my opinion, the killer gave us the skin as a gift or a taunt to say, see how good I am, catch me. Another person involved with this case was Dr. Marcy Zizachkowitz, a retired employee of the Institute of Forensic Studies in Krakow. In an interview, the doctor had this to say, It is very difficult to deal with corpses at all. 
many people are not able to do this. And yet, such a sophisticated action, as in this case took place, to cut off members, to dissect the skin, and a number of other activities, requires overcoming both very strong psychological resistance and simple disgust. It must be a man who has a very high resistance to this kind of stimulus. People who have reduced level of anxiety, sensitivity, and higher emotionality have such resistance. A psychopath. The psychological profile of the perpetrator was created for the needs of the investigation. The brief summary of the profile was characterized as age, at the time of the crime, 22 to 35 years old, a local type, most likely a resident of Krakow, a strong and fit man with at least average and even elevated intelligence, recluse, sexually disturbed, with the experience in the use of a knife, a scalpel, perhaps in the framing of animals. It is possible that they visit the victim's grave. Now that the Polish police were building their profile of who the killer could be, they began to try and come up with some possible suspects who could have gone through with such an act. As it turned out, Katarzyna's murder was just one of three skinning cases that had taken place in Poland. Investigators initially sought to find a link of two known perpetrators of other skinning murders and linking it to Katarzyna's case. The first possibility was a 48-year-old man who had killed and scalped his wife and son. The corpses had been split open and the eyes removed. This horrifying crime had taken place June 1985 on one of Krakow's settlements, over a decade before Katarzyna's death. The man had attempted to dispose of the remains of the corpses by dumping them in the river, another similarity in Katarzyna's case. As it would turn out, when Katarzyna had been killed, this murderer of the previous case was actually out of prison after receiving a medical leave pass. However, as promising as this possibility seemed at first, the man was quickly ruled out. Though he was indeed on a pass issued by one of the psychiatric hospitals at the time of Katarzyna's murder, it was due to his incredible poor physical health. When the young woman was murdered, this man was very sickly and bound to a wheelchair. The interrogators ruled out his involvement in the murder. At the same time, the police also looked to a second violent suspect. Four months after finding the remains of Katarzyna in Krakow, the corpse of a man with a severed and scalped head was found in a house's basement. Vladimir W. lived with both his father and grandfather, his family coming from the Caucasus. The grandfather living in the house was the one who had called the police after finding a grisly and mutilated corpse in the basement, made all the more traumatic by the fact that the victim was his own son. Though it appeared that the body was at least several days old, the grandfather had said this was impossible, as he had just seen his son the day before. This statement unfortunately led into one of the most disturbing aspects of this particular case. Vladimir W. had in fact murdered his father in the basement days prior, but afterwards went on with his disgusting plan by literally carving out his father's face. He went on to fashion a makeshift mask out of the skin, and began to wear it around the house. Vladimir even went so far as to putting on his father's clothes. The grandfather at the time had severely deteriorating eyesight, and though he thought he was seeing his son at the house, he was instead seeing the blurred vision of his grandson, who was wearing a grotesque disguise. The police became confident that someone who could go through such a violent and planned act could be the very same person responsible for Katarzyna's death as well. 
it seemed highly probable that in the span of just six months in the same city, that two similar disturbing skinny deaths would be committed by the same individual, and the investigators believed that the same perpetrator had acted out his violent urges twice, once on his father, and then also on Katagina. One of the medical professionals on the case remarked how confident that the police were that they had found their suspect, saying, It did not raise anyone's doubts that the perpetrator had killed Katagina a few months earlier. Dr. Zazachkowitz offered his own opinion on the new suspect as well. It seemed that maybe it was the second stage of the same perpetrator, with the same action. However, Dr. Zazachkowitz also points out that in the case of the second murder carried out by Vladimir W., family-related revenge was the main determined motivational factor. In the case of Katarzyna, it was, above all else, a sexually motivated crime. Though it seemed unlikely that two uniquely similar murders were committed by separate killers, it was also odd for someone to carry out two brutal murders with entirely different and separate motivations. For murder with particular cruelty, Vladimir W. was sentenced to 25 years in prison. After a few years into his sentence, at his own request, he was transferred to a prison in Russia. This took him out of any jurisdiction that Polish law enforcement had over Vladimir, which left some lingering doubts about whether Vladimir really was the person responsible for Katarzyna's death. If he did have anything to do with the student's murder, it was all left a mystery. Several years later, in February of 2014, the case was taken over by the Appellate Prosecutor's Office in Krakow. The 3D laboratory of the University of Rocklaw had recreated the course of Katarzyna's murder in a three-dimensional manner. Katarzyna, in their opinion, was tortured before her death. The perpetrator would inflict wounds in the area of the groin, armpit, and neck, so that she would slowly bleed out. The skin of the girl also had characteristic traces of repeated strikes, thought to be something like karate blows. Jacek Binkuski, a specialist of polygraphy who had been cooperating with the Krakow X archives for over 10 years and had issued over 1,000 opinions, said the case of the skin suddenly became apparent. Jacek said, I've worked with the case from the beginning. I've researched a total of a dozen or so people who could have been involved. The case was almost finished. I've issued an opinion on the environment and people who may have a criminal connection with the case and the role of the prosecutor was to collect evidence and document it in a procedural way, and to write an indictment. The circle became narrowed to one person, only one. He could be the perpetrator. The major breakthrough of this case would take place at the beginning of October 2017. Police officers from the Krakow X archives, under the supervision of the National Prosecutor's Office, detained their main suspect in the case. Then, 52-year-old Robert J., suspected of murder with particular cruelty. Though the formal suspicions of this Robert J. was relatively new information to the mass public, he had actually been a suspect for quite some time. Over the years, the investigation built their case and collected information before finally being confident enough in their arrest. When compiled, they believe that there is certainly a good case to be made that Robert J. is the murderer of Katarzyna Zawada. Robert lived on the Vistula. In fact, he lived just a few hundred meters from the place where the skin was found years before by the river barge. He was the son of a Krakow artist and author named Joseph, and apparently had a very difficult childhood. Robert's parents immediately gave him up after birth, 
and he was initially raised by his aunt. But when he was two, the aunt suddenly died, and Robert then went to live with his grandparents on the father's side. This move would no doubt play a part in warping the young boy's mind. Robert's father Joseph gave insight into the couple who had raised his son, seeing that they had only one principle of education, by beating. Joseph himself was beaten and abused regularly growing up by his parents. Whenever Joseph was late for anything, his father's favorite disciplinary action was to make the boy kneel over nails on the ground while holding a bucket of water over his head. While Joseph kneeled, his father would stand behind him with a belt in hand. Whenever the bucket grew too heavy and Joseph attempted to rest it on his head, or if his shaking arms happened to spill any of the water out, his father would give him a lash across the back with his belt. After a period of time had passed that satisfied his father, Joseph would finally be allowed to stand up, the nails often embedded into his knees and shins. Growing up in the strict and abusive home, Joseph said that the number of lashes he got depended on what rule he had broken. Joseph vividly remembered his worst punishment was a time when his father had strung him up by his wrist so that his toes were barely touching the floor, and his father then gave him 78 lashings with his dreaded belt. For nine years as a child, from the ages of 2 to 11, Joseph said that his son Robert J. would live with this terrible couple. Robert's father Joseph had no doubt that his son experienced the very same abuse and hardship that he himself had endured as a kid. Though this child abuse no doubt played a part in twisting Robert's developing mind, it still is not an excuse. After all, though both the father and son, Joseph and Robert, likely experienced similar abuse growing up, Joseph ended up as a poet rather than a skinning murderer like his son. Eventually, Robert would leave his grandparents and would once again live with his parents around the age of 11. Though the physical abuse might have stopped, there would still be plenty of torment and humiliation waiting for him there. This time, the perpetrators of violence would not be his guardians, but instead his peers. Robert would suffer beatings, name-calling, humiliation, and rejection from many of the nearby children. As a kid, in order to survive, Robert would often hide in school wardrobes away from the bullies. Throughout his early teen years, Robert's parents would argue and yell frequently at each other. Eventually, after a while, his parents would divorce, and Robert was taken care of by his mother. Neighbors would later say that there was something freaky about him. However, many would also admit, and even praise Robert, for his high intelligence. While living with his mother as a teenager, Robert liked to go fishing on the Vistula, and would often take long walks along the river. At the same time, Robert was also growing a reputation for his dark behavior, and on multiple occasions was known for his passion for tormenting stray cats and dogs. Robert would eventually join the army, though in the late 1980s, the army reprimanded Robert for several behavioral misconducts. After this, he would be transferred to serve in a religious hospital. There, he would be assigned various jobs, including becoming an assistant in the hospital morgue. It was here that the investigators believe that Robert's fascination with bodies and his skull with a scalpel would be learned. Along with his time around human corpses in the hospital, Robert would later work at the Krakow Zoology Institute. As part of his duties, he would observe the process of preparing skins from animal corpses there. However, Robert would also be fired from this job as well, after it was discovered that he had murdered all experimental rabbits during his shift. 
Robert could not offer an explanation for his cruel action or behavior, and was promptly let go. More insight of Robert was revealed from a woman who had been a former means of fascination from the man. This woman, who remained anonymous, told journalists that Robert had tried to get romantically involved with her shortly after the disappearance of Katagina. Though he made her uncomfortable in his persistent desires, she was too afraid of him to publicly cooperate with the police at the time. This woman said of Robert, He introduced himself as a very intelligent person, with an IQ above 180. He had talked about his rank, some Dan, about his karate belt. He was looking for a woman to be with his whole life, who was supposed to be a virgin, to have such and such a nature. I learned that he was a car mechanic. He told me that he did his military service in the hospital, where he was working at the corpse sections. As for his attitude about this, on the one hand he had a grudge that something like this happened to him, that he was directed there by the army, but on the other hand, he was excited about it. During an interview, the woman recalls one more detail. Robert said something about one woman with whom he had a close bond. When answering my questions about this woman, he was evasive. I learned from him that she went to the mountains, and then left him, never to come back. The woman said she had only found out later that Katagina loved the mountains. When asked whether in her mind Robert J. had it in him to kill someone, the woman briefly paused to think before simply answering, yes. Leading up to his arrest, Robert J. was back living with his mother and not working, and said living off his pension. Reporters had spoken to him and asked questions about the case and his possible involvement. Talking to them, Robert stated that he had never known any Katagina Zawada. He said to one investigator, I do not read newspapers, I do not have internet, I do not have a mobile phone, and the landline phone has been hung up for many months. I am socially isolated completely, I do not know anything. For those who knew him, Robert was infamous for his eccentric behavior. A few close to him mentioned his enjoyment of wearing women's underwear. He was also known to be sexually active with both women and men. He had stalked several women in the past. An informant who was close to Robert mentioned to the police that all the women he harassed were blonde. It was just his type. This made yet another connection with Katagina, who had recently dyed her hair blonde in the months before her disappearance. One of Robert's neighbors would be interviewed and gave his opinion of the man. The neighbor said, I have always been afraid of him. He had some madness in his eyes. One time in the store while standing behind my sister in the checkout line, I saw him bend down and sniff her from top to bottom. She was just 15 years old. Many people interviewed who lived around Robert mentioned a sudden change in the man after the disappearance of the student. Although Robert claims that he did not know the victim at all, for over 10 years he was very interested in the investigation conducted in the case of her murder. Much like one of the points made in the suspect profile made for the killers years back, it was discovered that Robert would often visit the gravesite of Katagina Zawada. At the time of Katagina's murder, Robert briefly worked in one of the institutions of the Jajelian University, the very same school Katagina studied at. Investigators believe that this is where the pair met, or at least where Robert would begin his observation and obsession with Katagina. Another instance of unusual behavior came to light from Robert's father, Joseph. At the time that Katagina was murdered, Robert was living alone, but his father would often visit. 
As Joseph recalls around the time Katarzyna disappeared, Robert unexpectedly decided to pull up all the tiles in his apartment bathroom and put in new ones. Dr. Kanopka, the head of the Department of Forensic Medicine in Krakow, said about this sudden renovation that it lights a warning light because what is most often found as evidence is blood. However, the blood cannot be completely removed. It soaks between the floor staves into the gaps between the tiles under the carpet. Forensic technicians would enter the apartment of Robert and take everything that could be peeled from the decorative layer in a search for evidence. Meanwhile, the media began to hunt for more people who could explain to them in any way what Robert was like as a person. In Robert's diary, captured by the prosecutor's office, the names and addresses of many women were found written. One of these women was interviewed by a journalist. This woman told reporters, He came to me constantly because he would like to have such a woman like myself for his own. He would come to me, bring me some books of prayers. I said, Mr. Robert, you could probably be a saint. And he said back, For you to know what I did, even if I prayed my whole life, it would not help. Robert would also bring letters to this woman, which were supposedly to be written about the woman he fancied. She said about these letters, I started to read, and there was a description. I cannot repeat it all, but it was terrible. Just about skinning, fucking, salting. That he would take off the skin. In her opinion, Robert is incredibly intelligent, remarking, The whole thing is like his play. Like him thinking the whole world is stupid, and I will outwit all of you. After the physical evidence and witness reports were taken into account, the investigators started to piece together the events leading up to Katarzyna's murder. They believe it likely that Robert made himself known to Katarzyna, perhaps even becoming friends for a short period of time leading up to her disappearance. On Thursday, November 12, 1998, Katarzyna would again plan to skip her college classes for the day. Investigators instead believe that she went out and in one way or another met up with Robert. Whether they had planned an outing or they just happened to meet across each other in the city was still not known. Robert enjoyed taking long walks around the city, just like Katarzyna. Investigators believe the pair took a walk, at which some point the man persuaded the younger woman to go with him to his house on the outskirts of Krakow. It was there that Robert would instead end up torturing, killing, and skinning Katarzyna Zawada. Investigators determined that the woman was imprisoned and tortured for an extended period of time before finally being killed. Katarzyna was giving three fatal stab wounds in the groin, heart, and carotid artery. As for the motive behind this terrible murder, it is believed to be primarily sexual. One of the criminal investigative professionals of this case remarked, It was sexual, that's for sure. However, it should be remembered that it was not about the traditional sexual intercourse, but instead about the suffering. It was in this that he found his fulfillment, as a so-called equivalent killer. According to criminologists, equivalent murder is to replace sexual intercourse with torture and murder. It is the pain and killing of the victim that gives a satisfaction similar to that experienced by a person with a normal sex drive during and after intercourse. Equivalent murder is considered to be the ultimate form of sadism. Now that law enforcement believed that they had their suspect and his motivation behind the murder, it was time to put together all the evidence which would show Robert J. was in fact the clear murderer of Katarzyna. Experts examining the skin of Katarzyna found traces of physical trauma strokes on it, which would indicate they were inflicted by someone who trained martial arts. 
Robert not only did a lot of training in karate, but was known to be incredibly strong. The precision of the cuts on the victim's skin found in the river were emphasized by the experts dealing with the case and showing that the murderer absolutely knew what he was doing. This was not the work of an amateur or someone making it up as they went along. Robert's earlier work of observing in a hospital's morgue and his work in an animal dissecting room would give him all the skills needed to pull such an act off. The house where he lived is located by the Vistula Boulevards, nearby the place where the skin was found, along with the leg and pelvic region of the victim. One big piece of evidence that remained shrouded in secrecy was a letter sent to the police about Robert before his arrest. This letter, coming from someone claiming to be very close to Robert, clearly points him out as the murderer of Katagina. After receiving this letter, the police began to focus in on Robert, and this was when all the puzzle pieces seemed to come together and point out that Robert was in fact the man they had been searching for. The exact contents of this letter and what claims it makes is not known to the public at this time, however. What exactly did this confidant write is unknown, and this letter remains one of the most guarded secrets of the investigation. According to criminologists, Robert feels a deficit of love on the part of an overbearing mother, has experienced psychological and physical violence on the part of his peers and his abusive grandparents, and has a lifetime of experiences taking part in fights and engaging in cruel and unusual acts towards others. Considering Robert J's life, his experiences, and his character, along with the brutality of the murder of Katagina, all seem to perfectly fit with the profile of an equivalency killer. A murderer of this type chooses a non-accidental victim, plans everything, shows great cruelty, and aims to objectify the victim. Robert J. is currently being detained, and it is expected that investigators will accuse him of murder with particular cruelty. His judgment in court will depend on how strong the evidence collected by law enforcement over the years will be. According to those working the case, they remain confident that the evidence gathered by the investigators is strong enough. When putting everything together, it does certainly seem to point to this man. Robert knew the victim, practiced martial arts, worked in a dissecting room where he could learn to cut the skin, and in his psychological profile, the experts point out his sadism and tendency to harass women. Though the evidence does seem to indicate to the police that they have found their suspect, the question still remains whether Robert J. was a long-time missing puzzle piece, or are all his connections to this case merely a twisted coincidence. In the present, Robert J.'s lawyer recently attempted a complaint for temporary custody to get the man out of jail until his trial. But the judge ruled that the man is dangerous and will remain in custody. The judge did emphasize that one could have doubts about the quality of circumstantial evidence collected by the prosecution. On the other hand, there are so many pieces of evidence that suggest Robert is involved somehow that the court decided to continue to hold the suspect. For now, the 52-year-old Robert J., Waits detained in a one-man cell, monitored at all times around the clock, awaiting his trial for murder. It is the hope of Katagina's family and everyone who has investigated and worked on the case over the years that justice be brought to Robert if he is in fact the person responsible for her cruel and disturbing murder. To this day, this case remains one of the most unusual and violent crimes in Polish history, and is certainly one of the strangest cases I have ever looked into. For now, after all the time and manpower that was put into solving this dark mystery, all parties involved must simply wait and see if the abduction and murder case of Katarzyna Zawada can be solved, and the 20-year-old cold case can finally be closed once and for all.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters podcast. If you have your own thoughts and feelings about the case of Katagina, or if you have suggestions for future episodes as well, please feel free to write to us at strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow and get in touch with us on our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you would like to support the podcast and gain access to exclusive monthly bonus episodes, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash strangematters. Finally, if you enjoy the podcast and listen to it on iTunes, please take the time to leave a rating and a review, as it helps promote the podcast and it's always good for us to hear feedback. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, take care everyone.